Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Bluff City Church, Memphis, Tennessee. God, we thank you for the ability to rest. We thank you for the ability to sit still and know um, that throughout the chaos of our minds, um, you are there and you are steady and you are loving us. And so God, we thank you uh, for this topic this morning, for the trailblazers who came before us to help pave the way um, for justice, for queer bodies. We thank you for their courage, for their strength. We pray that as we listen to this sermon um, and the words that Tom has to say, that we lean deeper into a more full version of love for all people. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Upper elementary and middle school, we are headed outside. All right. Are you ready to be nerdy for just a second? Okay. We are going to be nerdy today. I believe that I have distilled this down in a way that it is not so overwhelmingly nerdy that you can't stay without with it, you know, without like a linguistics background or something. Okay. But it, it, we have been talking about deconstruction all this year, the idea of deconstructing our faith and questioning some of our most foundational faith assumptions, which includes things that we were taught, things that we grow, grew up believing. And if we're going to talk about deconstruction, we cannot avoid the subject of LGBTQ inclusion, and we cannot avoid the subject of the fact that Paul is often assumed to be the one who sort of has originated this anti-LGBT uh, agenda, right? That Paul is often depicted or talked about as if he is the original, uh, original sort of Christian homophobe, right? And so what I want to do today is I want to deconstruct that idea by showing you some really interesting things. But before I do that, I need to make sure that we get some appropriate context. And I need you to keep this context in mind as we go through this. Because I think if you get this idea down, you will see how radically absurd some of the anti-LGBT stuff in the church has been. Okay? So, last week, we talked about Christians in Corinth who were socially powerful and were wealthy, were using the unjust Roman court system to sue and exploit Christians who were not as powerful and who were in fact poor. Paul was not just choosing an idea out of random to address, rather he was using that idea to set the stage for a much larger conversation about Christians exploiting one another. The whole point was to lay the groundwork to discuss exploitive practices. And Paul wrote that letter in order to call out those exploitive practices. Now, this week, today, in this sermon, we are discussing the exact same thing. Whatever else I say, 
We have to keep in mind that what Paul is doing in this letter is addressing exploitive practices, which is, sadly, really ironic with our passage today. Because this is a passage, a text, where Paul has criticized the use of social privilege to exploit the powerless, this text has ironically for 70 years been used by those with social privilege to exploit the powerless. This is the big idea that I want you to get today. This text has been used by 70, for 70 years by homophobic persons to exploit the powerless LGBT community. Which is ironic because the whole point Paul is making in this text is that you should not use your social privilege to exploit other people. Now, let me show you how this passage flows visually so that you can get your bearings as we dive into it. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is moving from this theme of do not exploit others... And what he is going to do is move from this theme to give us specific examples of what this exploitation may look like. He is going to name several exploitive practices. So the big idea here is the powerful should not exploit the weak. The particular example he has already appealed to is that the rich should not sue the poor in the unjust Roman court system. It is a movement from general to specific. And what Paul is going to do is get even more specific. He is going to begin to reference several other specific examples of exploitation. What are those forms of exploitation? He says it. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves, he says. Those who indulge in sexual sin, or who worship idols, or commit adultery, or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or are abusive, or cheat people, None of these, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. So what he has done is move from a specific uh, or a general theme to very specific ideas in a vice list. Now, I, have, uh, I will be highlighting today the two terms, uh, the two phrases in our English are male prostitutes and practice homosexuality in order to address the specific concerns we want to deconstruct today. But here's the big idea that I want you to keep in mind. This is the idea that I hope that you will walk away with some clarity on. Modern English translations of the Bible are intentionally, not accidentally, intentionally inaccurate and driven by Western culture wars when it comes to translating this text. The Greek words behind 
the two phrases translated homos, uh, male prostitutes and practice homosexuality, the two terms behind that are not nearly as clear or homoerotic as these English translations suggest. New Testament scholar, Yale New Testament scholar, so we're talking about a guy from Yale. This is not an intellectual pushover here, right? Yale New Testament scholar Dale Martin says this, the New Testament provides little ammunition to those who wish to condemn modern homosexuality. Compared to the much more certain condemnations of anger, wealth, adultery, or disobedience of wives and children, the few passages that might be taken as condemning homosexuality are meager, which in itself ought to cause us to step back and ask if all of these other texts are emphasizing these other things so clearly, why is there so many, so much anger, vitriol, and lines in the sand about this practice? Could it be that the church's position on this has historically been driven not by the actual text of Scripture, which gives us meager support against LGBTQI inclusion, and really it's driven by the fact that we do not want to acknowledge our own sin and we would rather blame other people for our problems. But we have to earn our way to that conclusion. And I am going to earn my way to that conclusion by being uber nerdy today. And we're going to, what we're going to do is we are going to discuss philology, linguistics, and translation. And I'm going to show you what goes into translating words. So that the next time somebody says to you, well, clearly the Bible is against gay folks. Don't you see the word homosexuality there? You could say, hmm, put on your nerd glasses because I'm about to give you a philology lesson. Okay? Now, the two Greek words that Paul uses in this vice list, the first one translated by my NLT as uh, male prostitutes is arsenikoites. And the second one translated as practice homosexuality is not actually a verb, it's a noun, malakoi. Okay? So there are two Greek words, we're going to take them one at a time. Okay? Here we go. Having read numerous scholars, conservative and progressive, what I want to demonstrate by this analysis of these words is that the way these words were used in Paul's day and... The way they were used in English, the way they were translated in English Bibles before the sexual revolution did not at all reflect any understanding that these terms referred to same-sex practice. None. Rather, what we find is that these terms are used in context where Stay with me here. People were addressing economic exploitation, which is exactly the context Paul is using them in 1 Corinthians 6. Now, let's earn our way to that conclusion. Let's start with arsenikoites, the term translated by my, my NLT as male prostitutes. A few quick hitters will help us with this term. 
should realize at the very least, even if you disagree with me, at the very least you should say, well, we should be a lot more humble about the way we talk about that, okay? First of all, as far as I am aware, there are no uses of arsenikoites in all of Greek literature before it occurs in Paul. So it's almost like this dude just made up a word. There are no Greek uses. So we can't go back before Paul and see how the word was used to see what Paul is doing with it. Jesus doesn't use it. No Greek literature uses it before Paul. No one outside the Bible uses it before Paul, as far as I am aware. Now, in Paul, it occurs one time, maybe two, depending on if you consider 1 Timothy authentically Pauline. But here's the thing. In both 1 Corinthians 6-9, which is our text today, and in 1 Timothy 1-10, both of the uses of the term occur in vice lists where it's set alongside of other sins and behaviors. So in other words, what we don't have is a story around us that can help us understand how the word is being used. It just occurs in a bunch, in bullet points, essentially. So the context, even in Paul, for how Paul is using this word is, we know that it means something not good because it's in a vice list, but we don't actually know what it's referring to. That in itself ought to cause some humility. But it gets even more messy. Scholars have suggested that what is happening here is Paul is referring back with this word to two Greek words from the Greek translation of the Old Testament from Leviticus 20.13. Arsen, which means male, and koitai, which uh, think of the word coitus. Arsen male, coitus would be sex or bed. Bed would be a euphemism for sex. And so what scholars are saying is Leviticus 20.13 is probably like, it's, one, it's another clobber passage, right? Where the Torah says a man shall not lie with a man as a man lies with a woman, right? In Leviticus 20.13, the two words arson and koitai occur as separate words. And so what scholars are saying is that Paul has taken these separate words from Leviticus 20.13 and shoved them together to make one word that unambiguously refers to same-sex sex. Now, that kind of makes some logical sense when you think about it, right? We got a word that, a compound word that refers to male betters or male sex. That makes sense until one, you consider what you already know, which is that there's no context for helping us determine the meaning of this word. Or how is, is Paul, like how is Paul using it? But two, let's ask a simple question about translation. When you have a compound word that you want to translate from one language to the next, 
is the best way to translate that word literally? Let me give you an example. Let's say that 2,000 years from now, scholars from a completely different language group wanted to translate our compound word dragonfly. If they were to translate that literally, they would have debates. Can you imagine 2,000 years from now, scholarly debates about, well, how come we don't have any physical evidence or evolutionary evidence of these people's reference to little fire-breathing flies? In other words, my point is that to simply take a compound word and to assume that a literal translation is the best way to handle it is not always justifiable. Okay? If you're going to do that, you have to have good reason to do it. But, let's assume for the sake of argument that our conservative friends do have good reason for it. Let's assume for the sake of argument that arsenicoites, a compound word that never occurs anywhere before this, let's assume, in fact, that the literal male betters is the best way to translate it. Does that justify the church's 2,000 years of homophobic practice? The answer is no. And the reason is, again, because the context you already know it. Keeping exploitation in mind, this term, at most, refers to the ancient Greek practice of pederasty. If you remember this from your like world history class 101 in college, pederasty referred to a very common, what was considered normal and moral, though we would find it morally disgusting, a very common, normal, and moral Greek form of pedophilia, whereby older men sexually mentored younger men, and through that mentoring, they also established economic and social connections that would help these young boys for the rest of their life. Now, you and I are rightly disturbed by the practice. I think Paul is disturbed by the practice. And I think that at most, what scholars can say is that that is what Paul is referencing if we take our synecoites literally. He is referring to exploitive practices, not mutual, loving, consensual same-sex relationships. Third, even if we justifiably translated our synecoites literally, one thing that is important to recognize about translation is that translators do not determine the meaning of a word by going to the dictionary and finding the first reference in a Greek dictionary to the word and then saying that's what it must mean in every circumstance. What scholars do is they look at the context of how a Greek word is used used in its context. Let me give you an example. A few weeks ago, uh, I know we all hate Steph Curry right now, but a few weeks ago, my son and I were talking about Steph Curry. 
and we were talking about basically how this guy has like broken the NBA three-point record at a very comparatively young age. And as my son walked away, he says, that's just so dope, Dad. Now, here's the thing. If we went and looked up the word dope in our English dictionary, we might first maybe get like a medical reference. We might get a reference to marijuana. But neither of those first two definitions of the word would be what my son is saying. To understand what my son is saying, we'd have to go to UrbanDictionary.com because UrbanDictionary.com refers to how words are used, not merely how they are defined. And so what you have to do with a word like arsenikoites is you can't just look at how a word is defined in a Greek dictionary and translate it that way every single time. You have to look at how a word is used. But as I already said, the usage in Paul is difficult to determine because he only uses it once, maybe twice, and that in vice lists that don't give us context. So, what do you do? Well, what you do is, if you're a nerd, you go to material, Greco-Roman literature, outside of the Bible. And you say, can we find arsenikoites after Paul, and how is it used in those contexts? But here's what we find. Here's the dirty secret they don't tell you about. Arsenikoites, outside of Paul, doesn't occur primarily in reference to same-sex sexuality. It occurs in context responding to, stay with me, economic exploitation, which is precisely, again, the context Paul is using it in 1 Corinthians 6. There are, however, two references in Greco-Roman literature where arsenikoites does unambiguously refer to same-sex sex. And guess what? They're not mutual, monogamous, loving same-sex relationship. They are rape. So to take that word... And to use it to turn around and condemn all mutual loving same-sex relationships across time is duplicitous and hurtful. So despite the fact that 1 Corinthians 6 is about exploitive practices, despite the fact that in the Bible arsenikoites is an extremely rare word, and it is an extremely rare word even outside of the Bible and Greco-Roman literature, despite the fact that compound words cannot necessarily be taken literally, and despite the fact that we don't know how this word was used... And a dictionary definition is somewhat insufficient. And despite the fact that arsenikoites probably refers to pedophilia, despite all of that, 
our Bible translators who are primarily conservative Christians translating the Bible for conservative Christians because conservative Christians are the ones who buy the Bibles, our Bible translators translating for conservative audiences have not shied away from the massive logical leaps of translation that comes up with things like the NIV says, referring to both of these Greek words together in one phrase, homosexual perverts. Doesn't that make you want to throw your NIV away? And this brings me to my final point about arsenicoites. You still with me? Last point about arsenicoites. You don't have to have Greek literature to know this one. The translation of our of arsenicoites in our English Bibles reflects our culture wars and not good Greek scholarship. Consider this. The Wycliffe translation in 1380 translated arsenicoites as they that do lechery with men. Okay. I mean, it's weird. I'm not sure anybody really knows what that means. But then again, nobody really knows what arsenicoites means. So that might actually be a relatively safe translation. Then the Tyndale, 1534, Geneva, 1557, KJV, 1611, ASV, 1901, all refer to liars with mankind. Well, that could refer to women too. Do you see how it's not gendered? Again, it's left ambiguous. It seems to sort of imply that there's some sexual thing happening here. But like, it's not restricted to gay folks. But here's what I want you to notice. Notice 1946. What is happening in the 1940s? The 1950s and the 1960s. You have the equal rights movements. You have feminism. You have gay rights activism, and you have civil rights activism for black folks. So right around the time that all of this is happening in our culture, suddenly our English translations shift from something that is ambiguous to something that says, RSV 1946, sexual perverts. The TEV 1966, homosexual perverts. Well, we got really specific there, didn't we? Night, the NAB 1970, sodomite. Sodomite? That is a connection back to Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, which does not, is not justified by the text of 1 Corinthians 6. I don't care how conservative you are. So the translations, because of a conservative Christian reaction to the culture wars, the translations refer to homosexual offenders and sodomites as a way of reaffirming white male straight privilege during a time of upheaval in our culture. It does not reflect good Greek scholarship. The translation started off as some ambiguous action performed with men, regardless of sexual orientation. 
Then it became the action of a man himself performs. And then it became, quote, a perversion. And then connected Sodom and Gomorrah without textual warrant to degrade gay people because that's a reference conservative preachers were making. And then finally, in order to come up with the term homosexual, what you have to do is psychologize the word. Homosexual is an orientation, not in action. Not all, quote, homosexual people have sex. Homosexual just refers to your orientation. And so what they have done in this is they have actually condemned the orientation itself. And the whole thing is rooted in our culture wars. So the bottom line is this. Recent translations leave us thinking that Paul is condemning all same-sex relationships in this text. But this is based on two assumptions. Number one, a reading of our own ideological and cultural wars onto the text. And two, a post-Freudian psychological categorization of the terminology, which Paul would not have recognized. Have I sufficiently nerded you out? Because I have another word to examine. This one will be shorter and a lot more clear. Let's talk about the second word, malakoi. Malakoi is a frequently occurring word in Greek literature. So this is good news, right? This is good news. We can know how a word is defined, and we can know how a word is used in various contexts. Conservative scholars argue that when the two words are put together, our synechoites refers to the male active penetrating partner. And that malakoi refers to the male passive penetrated partner. Where did they get that idea? I don't know. I don't know. Here's why. Because Malakoi, we're going to see, has nothing whatsoever to do with gay sex. Nothing. Now, as I said, Malakoi has many uses. And what I want to argue is that homosexual practice, which is how my NLT uses this word, is far afield from what Malakoi means. Malakoi, rather, occurred in contexts where the reference was to weakness of character. It was a general word referring to weakness of character. And when it was specified, I just want to note, the, just going to give you some bullet points of what Malakoi referred to. What kind of weakness of character, you may ask? Well, let me give you some bullet points. One it could refer to cowardice during war. It could refer to wearing expensive clothing. Did you shop at the Gap? Malakoy. Inability to control your eating. Do you got a dad bod? Malakoy. Being lazy. Malakoy. Being unable to produce a male offspring and just having lots and lots of girls. Noah, Malakoy. Yeah. <laughs> or 
and here's where the sexual component comes in, inability to control your sex drive. And in context, it mostly refers to heterosexual sex, not same-sex sex. Malakoi is not gendered in Greek literature. Well, it is, but we need to get there. So how did we get from Malakoi referencing weakness of character to, quote, those who practice homosexuality? Well, the answer is complex and simple. It begins with, and stay with me here, hatred for women. It begins with patriarchy and hatred for women. Let me show you how this works. As early as the 16th century, English translations reflecting the patriarchy of Western Europe, and to be fair, the patriarchy of the Greco-Roman world, translated Malakoi as effeminate. Effeminate? Now that seems absurd to us because we are shaped by decades of feminism. But put yourself in the highly patriarchal culture of that world. Certain weak characteristics Weak characteristics were always associated with women, and strong characteristics were always associated with men. So to translate this as effeminate was essentially to say any behavior that reflects the character of a woman. Laziness, over-emotional, can't control yourself, woman. Do you see, there were all these stereotypes and all this hatred for women that associated women with the bad and the weak and men with the good and the strong that went into the translation of this as feminine, as effeminate. That does not mean that this word was necessarily gendered. What it means is that a man or a woman was effeminate if they conveyed these character traits that were not valued by white, straight men. So translating Malakoi and eventually getting to homosexual practice actually originates in a hatred for women. Then, women were most of all penetrated during, during sexual intercourse. Women were, quote, passive. Because of being penetrated, women were considered subservient, where the penetrating partner is the dominant. Do you, so do you see it's about maintaining social hierarchy, even in the way you talk about sex? Well, that is how they talked about sex in the Greco-Roman world. The, the penetrating partner is the dominant, aggressive, superior one, and the penetrated partner in male or female sex was the subservient, weak character one. So you can see how conservative scholars would get from effeminate, the association of this terminology with women and passivity and being penetrated, to, oh, clearly 
this refers to the passive partner in a same-sex male encounter. It's absurd to me, but you can see how they would make the connections. The bottom line is this. Dale Martin, again, Yale New Testament scholar, says, during, uh, says no real historical or philological evidence has been marshaled to support these shifts of translation. He says, especially not that of effeminacy of the earlier versions to the homosexual perversion of the last 50 years. Do you notice what he did? He connects it to the last 50 years because it's about the sexual revolution. It is about maintaining white, straight, male patriarchal authority. Which is exactly why feminists today have long said that homophobia is actually rooted in a hatred of women. The issue in Paul's day that Malachi referred to was not about gay or straight sex. The issue was whether one acted like a man or acted like a woman. And that, my friends, is not an LGBTQ issue. That is a patriarchy issue. So, Dale Martin says this. And then we'll move on. What strikes me about the Greco-Roman texts that use Malakoi is their rank misogyny, which is just the point. The real problem with being penetrated was that it implicated the man in the feminine. The Malakos referred not to the penetration per se, but the perceived acts of femaleness associated with it. The word Malakos referred to the entire ancient complex of the devaluation of the feminine. Thus, people could use Malakos as an insult directed, directed against men, directed against men who love women too much. At issue here is the ancient horror of the feminine. So, I want to admit, despite the fact that I got super nerdy on you today, that there would be, this is a very surface level analysis. A lot of ink has been spilled over this, and if there were conservative scholars in here, they would probably say, Tom, I disagree with you about some points, okay? Of course they would. Um, but here's what I want to claim. Nothing I have said here is directly coming from Tom. I have read a ton of conservative and progressive scholars because I believe the implications of this discussion are vast and important. So what could be some takeaways rather than you just hopefully being a little bit smarter? First of all, notice the terrible irony. 1 Corinthians 6 was written to demand that the socially privileged stop using their social privilege to hurt the socially powerless. The vice list that Paul use, uses, which includes the elements of greed and idolatry, is not just a general list of behaviors that Paul doesn't like, but rather every item on that list can be traced to the theme of the socially powerful using their power to exploit the weak which makes our use of this text against LGBT people incredibly tragic. 
a text that criticizes the use of social privilege to exploit the powerless has for 70 years been used by the socially privileged to exploit the socially powerless. And so my goal in this talk has been, one, to remove from this text, to remove this text from its anti-LGBT stigma, and thus, two, to show that maybe we would have to examine other passages, but maybe Paul is not the homophobic person we think he is. Second, I want you to notice that nowhere have I claimed that Paul would affirm LGBT folks or marriage or their inclusion in the church. Do you know why I haven't said that? Because Paul's not right here for me to ask him what he would say. I just want to allow for the fact that Paul may not have been quite the progressive we would like him to be. But my larger argument is he's also not the conservative that he is often claimed to be. Finally, I want to close with this moral reflection. And this comes from Dan Ovia, a New Testament scholar and an ethicist. He was talking about biblical rules and how sometimes when we understand the biblical rule in its social context, maybe the rule isn't as binding. And so he said, essentially, we have four options. He says, we could say when a rule and its social, conflict, and its social context come into conflict, we have four options. One, we could say that the rule has no validity because it's a foreign context. It just doesn't apply today. This is 2,000 years later. Or we could say the rules are useful, but if there's a conflict between the rule and the context, the rule can simply be discarded. Okay, there's a conflict between the social context and the rule about no gays. So we'll just get rid of the rules, right? Option number three would say, in a conflict between the rule and the context, we cannot disregard the rule, but there may be some context weighty enough to override the rule. And then finally, he says, some people say that there are no contexts or situations that can... can, that can uh, override a rule. Rather, when the Bible gives a rule, you just submit no matter the context, right? This, number four, is what our conservative friends have done. They say it doesn't matter what the social context is in the first century or today. It doesn't matter. We have a clear rule, no gays. It doesn't matter what the social context. They've opted for number four. But here's what I want you to know. That opting for number four is a choice they make. There are other options that are logically legitimate. I personally would espouse number three. I think what the Bible has to say about specific rules, even outside of LGBT discussions, I think when the Bible gives us imperatives, those imperatives matter, but they only make sense within their cultural context. And so we can't just get rid of the rule, but we can say difference in cultural context, updating of knowledge, updating of psycho psychological experience. All of these things can inform the way we respond to LGBTQ people and say, you know what, maybe the Bible is not as progressive as I would like it to be, but it doesn't matter because the cultural context has shifted and that allows us to approach the Bible differently and with clean eyes. If your ethical position 
when you look back over 2,000 years, if your ethical position has led to a trail of blood and tears, then you should rather reconsider the ethics of your position. The cultural context is demanding that the church see that its anti-LGBT agenda has taken lives. And that in itself should cause us to question a lot of things.